0: First night we got into our house. We didn't have any of our stuff. It was all in storage. We had an air mattress in the living room, and outside the house, it's loud. It's like a Friday night or something. It's loud late into the night, and so it's a little, a little intimidating. So I've got the, I've got some of those thoughts in my head. Like, did we make the right decision here? And just about midnight comes a knock on the door. Boom, 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 boom. I'm like, oh no! And I, I got up. I went to the door and open up, and it's a teenage girl. And she says, hi, my name is Portia. I live across the street. She said, that's my grandma on the porch over there. She said, my grandma said that your keys are hanging in your front door, and you probably shouldn't leave them there. (laughs) (laughs) I looked down, and there's my keys in the front door, car keys and everything. And that story on that first night, I really think was there to say, just because you're not comfortable all the time, doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. It actually can mean you're in a very good place.
1: Hello, welcome to What's Next. I'm Joel Krogman, this is my podcast. Today on the show was my conversation with Bill Curry. Bill is the Vice President of Development at St. Matthew's House in Naples, Florida. But before his role at St. Matthew's House, Bill served as the chief program officer at Breakthrough in Chicago. Breakthrough serves a specific area on the west side of Chicago called Garfield Park. They support people through education and youth development, economic opportunity, housing, health and wellness, violence prevention, spiritual formation. Bill helped create Breakthrough's model for the work that they do in the community. And that's really where I got to know him. When, when I first moved down to Chicago, my wife and her family were pretty heavily involved with the after-school program and tutoring. And my wife went on to work there and volunteer in a lot of different capacities. And when I moved down to Chicago, I got involved as well. I was an unemployed immigrant, or soon-to-be immigrant, waiting for my green card. And so I spent a lot of time at this organization at Breakthrough, just volunteering in different ways. Breakthrough would, every year would host a, an annual Fundraiser to raise money for their work, and you know, Bill hired me. He took a chance on me Uh, when I had first started my own business, my own production company. He he hired me to make a video about Breakthrough, and I'll never forget. There was there was a number of videos that played throughout the night, and one of the videos was a was this really well done story, and the video was just incredible. I and I didn't make it. (laughs) And there's people I knew in the audience who texted me and were just like, "Wow." I knew you were working on videos for Breakthrough, so amazing job. <laughs> I had to say, actually, that one, I didn't do that one. Uh, I did the first video that played tonight, and I got some very polite responses back. And I think I could say the video that I made for Breakthrough was good, but that particular story video was special. It was a humbling experience, but it made me realize what was possible through video. what what good storytelling could do, even though I still had lots of growing to do and lots of learning to do. Bill, he always gave me opportunity and he believed in me in a way that helped me believe in myself. And so it was really great to connect with him again for this conversation. And uh, please enjoy my conversation with Bill Curry. Man, you got palm trees out your out your window now? Yeah. Amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Quite quite different.
1: Yeah. All right, well, thanks for doing this, Bill.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, is this just audio or is this also video in your in your format?
1: It's just audio. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't I have don't to have worry to about worry about my hair or anything. No. <laughs> the video will just facilitate the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> You're in Florida now. I am. <laughs> What's going on? Southwest, What's going on? Southwest Florida, Naples, Florida.
0: Um, yeah, and uh, so yeah, it's been uh, a whirlwind in transition in in my life for sure. Yeah, as far as occupation goes, I'm uh, overseeing fundraising and marketing and communications for an organization called St. Matthew's House mm. that uh, is working to uh, help people move from crisis. To contributor. Hmm. Uh, typically, in the the crises that they come to us in are related to homelessness, hunger, addiction, uh, joblessness. Uh, and so we have a variety of programs in a pipeline that help people uh, get back to a, a state where they can contribute their gifts and talents uh, to the community around them uh, in a more reliable way. We do it all through, through a faith-based okay. approach as, as well.
1: Okay. And that was a a big change to move down there. And I want to get into that process you went through and, and how you came to that uh, decision. Before we do that, I'd like to go back to learn a little bit more about you. I've known you for a while now. Yeah, um, probably over you know.
0: 15 years probably. Yeah,
1: I think right about there, yeah. Yeah, Mo and I are coming up on our 14th year anniversary. So yeah, probably about 15 years. Where did you grow up?
0: Grew up in uh, a town outside of Indianapolis called Brownsburg. So central Indiana. Okay. Went to college over in Ohio. Became a high school basketball coach near Cincinnati. Uh And then on that path, kind of moved to Chicago uh, where basketball kind of – was a springboard for me into community development working Mm -hmm. working with folks in the margins of of society
1: okay and you were playing basketball as a kid
0: yeah i played basketball i mean i I went to a small enough school that you know kind of played basketball soccer baseball cross country you kind of did it did it all if you were an athlete in one sport that all the coaches from the other sports wanted you to play too yeah (laughs) you know and uh uh, so there was enough to field a, a competitive team, but uh, so yeah, basketball was a main a main activity for me. Something that I loved, learned a lot from, uh, learned a lot from coaches as well, uh, and has been a, a big part of my life individually and in the next generation up in my family as
1: well. Yeah, yeah. Did you, was your, were your parents involved in sports and was that important to them or did you kind of get into it through your friends and through school?
0: Uh, I would say my dad grew up on a farm in, in Northern Kentucky um, and, uh, or I should say Western Kentucky, probably more, but, uh, and he always had a desire to play sports, but his schedule on the farm didn't always allow him to participate. Right. Uh, And so uh, he wanted he. He worked hard to make sure that I didn't have those same kind of barriers. Uh, It was also something along my mom was always involved at the school. She was a cheerleading coach for quite a long time uh, as well. And uh, a bunch of my friends in my age group, you know, just second, third grade kind of caught a love for sports together. And we played, you know, really in that small town, played all the sports all the way through high school together.
1: So what did your dad do Well, he left the farm to, he didn't, he did not want to farm. He made that decision. <laughs> well, he
0: moved to, uh, uh, he left the farm fairly soon after in his, his mom moved to Indianapolis as well. And uh, his dad had passed away. And, um, so he ended up in the, in the construction field as a foreman and kind of a water, water main lines and sewer lines and stuff for several years. And, uh, ultimately uh, the, his, his Christian faith was renewed in him. And he left that field feeling like he was uh, supposed to be part of a staff at a church, like in yeah. more, in more of a pastoral role. Uh, and so, uh, that's what he, then by the time I was born, that's what he was doing. Um, he was in that transition from construction to over to working at the church where he was a kind of the business manager and, uh, he pastor was a pastor of like, uh, folks in the church who maybe felt like they were on the outskirts. Maybe they'd gone through divorce uh, or some sort of addiction or um, just maybe they were a single adult in a church that was really geared towards families and married couples.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so he kind of worked with folks. He and my mom both worked with folks in the margins uh, of the church congregation a lot.
1: Huh? do, do you attribute your, uh, vocation and kind of your, the way you lived, lived your life coming from how your dad and your parents sort of operated in, in the work that they did?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I didn't really realize that until more recently uh, when, you know, my parents, it was very common for them to have people over to their house, you know, uh, it was common for people who might be going through a tough time to be able to sleep on our couch for several nights, if not longer. You mm. and, uh, and uh, it just really, I wouldn't call it like an open door policy because it was also a really safe place for my sister and I to grow up. But uh, it was definitely a place where uh, they were engaged not only in the activities of of the Christian faith at church, but in the daily relational walk with folks who maybe didn't have a lot, a lot of other people to lean on.
1: Mm. And so... You interacted with a lot of people that were coming in, in and out of your dad's ministry and work?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. no, for sure. It was uh, uh, the school that I went to. Uh, I had 26 kids in my graduating class. It was a school that was attached to that church. Okay. Uh, and and so I was around a lot. You know, I actually, as a seventh grader, I started working at the church cutting the grass and working on the janitorial team and stuff like Mm -hmm. that too Uh, Mm -hmm. starting to learn a little work ethic and uh, being able to have a boss you know who was the head of the custodian team and the maintenance and lawn care and those sorts of things and so i was around a lot uh, especially in my elementary years Uh, in high school years i was probably a little bit less around just because of my sports schedule and activities at school and stuff. And I got my own set of my own 1978 American Motors Matador station wagon. (laughs) Freedom. Yes. I had a little freedom with that giant. I once fit 17 of my classmates in that car to go out for pizza.
1: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's like almost your whole class.
0: Pretty close. Pretty close. (laughs) We, We, uh, but yeah, I was to answer your question more directly. Um, it it was definitely our our entire family. Uh we weren't isolated from the ministry that my parents were a part of. We were a part of we were part of it.
1: Okay. Yeah, I grew up uh the son of uh, uh it kinda sounds similar actually. My my dad did not have like pastoral training. He didn't go to theology school, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff, but he you know, he he worked in agriculture and then just kind of felt like he was supposed to be working in the church mm. and then became a pastor at some point and was much more of like a, someone who counseled people through difficult situations and, you know, that kind of stuff. I always felt like I was, yeah, similar. I was at the church all the time. We were there three times a week and it wasn't even necessarily for church activities for us, it was just because. My dad had to be there, and no one. We needed somebody to look after us.
0: (laughs) Yep, I had similar. I I ran the halls of the church a lot of nights, you know, with some friends whose parents were also there for some of the evening programming and stuff. And yeah, we were trustworthy enough not to get into trouble. Yeah, Um, but we also played a lot of games of hide and seek and capture the flag and stuff like that. Yeah. throughout the church. Facilities. Yeah. You kind of <laughs> know
1: all the, all the ins and outs of the building, all the secret spots. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious just because of my experience with my dad, how did you see your dad operating in that role as a leader and as somebody that people looked up to? What, what was your impression of him?
0: Yeah. You know, I always saw him as a person who had uh, significant vision and ideas and like very much from a, a leadership perspective, I also saw from him a um, a great deal of willingness to follow uh, someone else's vision too. Hmm. So um, you know, I, I, and I think looking back, and you know, I think there's uh, when you think of servant servant leadership, you know, my dad was a great example of that. In addition to all the regular church activities, we were also—he was first or second on the call list for the church alarm when it went off at two o'clock in the morning, yep. uh, or when we had a lot of rain and in the, the basement flooded, mm. you know. And and I remember what you know, him and about six or eight other men from the church would all rally to the church in the middle of the night to to put this get the sump pumps working to squeegee out all the water. <laughs> and all of us, all of us sons would come along too, man. We would right alongside with the squeegees, you know, and,
2: yeah.
0: um, so I didn't just see a person who was on the platform of the church regularly talking. I mm-hmm. saw a person who was in so committed that in the middle of the night, they were there solving problems, uh, as well. Uh, so that, that was a great example for me. I, I carry on a lot of that with, with myself as I, I'm pretty comfortable, like in the boardroom of an organization you know, in those kind of conversations, but I also really enjoy like when the lights are not on the stage, you know, and it, it's behind the scenes and there's something to be done. I enjoy jumping in to do a lot of like behind the scenes, more servant work too, not just leadership. So my my dad was a great example for that.
1: Hmm, That's cool. What, what um, was your relationship like with him? Were you, were you guys really close? Did, was he kind of a, disciplinarian. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I think there was at that time, there was definitely like a, I wouldn't say like we were best friends. You yeah. know, He was definitely a, a father figure uh, that I, that I respected a lot. In fact, there was a lot of uh, during the course of my life, mostly the way I've behaved has been in, in acceptable ways. Hmm. And when I was young, uh, the, a lot of the reasons why I behaved in those acceptable ways was out of my respect for him. And maybe even a little bit of a fear Mm -hmm, (laughs) uh, mm -hmm. as well uh, of fear of disappointment or uh, things like that, too. Uh, And so I would say it was it was really healthy. Uh, Sometimes in this day and age, you know, parents and and kids, you know, might think of each other as really grow into like super close friends. Yeah, Uh, I always viewed my dad even in adulthood as someone who was still much further along than me and was kind of a more of a source of wisdom than a source of friendship, Mm. if that made sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've, I've seen in you, someone who is just pretty self-assured like that. I don't, I don't see you as somebody who wrestles with self-doubt with feeling, not sure what to do, if whether you belong, whether you're the right person to deal with something. And I, I think a lot of that, for us as men, kind of does come from our relationship with our fathers. Do you feel like from your relationship with your dad, you kind of drew some modeling for that of how you didn't wonder if you mattered? You didn't, it, that wasn't like a question you had to answer.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would agree with what you're saying. um To add a little color commentary from my yeah. angle, uh, is my parents did a fantastic job of. Like I never wondered if I mattered to them Mm. Uh, and uh, the school and the church and the community that I was in uh, was did a very good job of uh, of grooming a bunch of us to think of ourselves as leaders and as problem solvers uh, as parts of a bigger whole uh, and that we were gifted, but yet and we were significant, but also All by ourselves we weren't the solution to things
2: Mm.
0: and so i think um, one side of that is humility Mm -hmm. right is recognizing that i that while i can be a little bit self-assured and i can know that i'm part of a team or part of a solution or uh, part of a community i'm also kind of incomplete without being connected to other people
2: Mm.
0: and i think for me like if if you happen to see me as self-assured It kind of rests in the reality that those two principles are linked together, Mm -hmm. that I'm gifted and talented, and yet I'm not designed to operate as a team of one.
1: Yeah. The risk there, like what I'd be tempted to do is to (laughs) to feel like there's something wrong with me if I'm not able to solve this all by myself.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think for me, even as a, even as an adult, it wasn't that long ago that, uh, Patrick Lencioni's book about the five dysfunctions of a team. Mm-hmm. And then you had some of the work that came out related to strength finders
2: mm-hmm. and
0: things like that. That as I was entering the adult workforce,
2: mm-hmm.
0: as I was stumbling on these things about pers- your personality traits and like, you know, Myers Briggs personality, you know, inevitably you look, you get those reports and you look at them and you're like, oh man, I'm visionary and I'm persuasive and I'm futuristic <laughs> and I'm all these things. Oh, but guess what? That means you're not all of these other things as yeah, yeah. Mu- as much. <laughs> um,
2: right.
0: So all of those things to me, uh, and I think also I played a lot of team sports growing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. and basketball in particular uh, was one where if you try to play every position, you're not going to be very successful.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, and so you. Uh, in my experience in high school, I played with the same set of guys for several years in a row. And it got to the point where, without even looking, you kind of knew where guys were going. And I hear soccer players talk about this a lot too. Yeah, is that uh, uh, you? You know when a guy's going to overlap you and, and cut to the wing, and you can drop the ball in front of them. You know, you just you get this, you get synced up on a team. Yeah. And when you and we, as a small basketball, small college or small high school team in Indiana, we accomplished a whole lot with that group. And none of us were superstars. So it's really set the groundwork for me to to believe in team. Mm. And for the team to be successful, if each person needs to believe in themselves. But they also need to recognize that they got to put the team goal first because they can't do it by themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to, to a couple things there. But do you feel like you came to that realization as an adult in hindsight or as a kid you were processing that?
0: I think I was experiencing it as a kid and maybe getting intellectual glimpses of the idea Mm. as I went along significantly from, from my coaches, Mm. you know, they, they would pound those kind of principles like a lot of coaches do. And so I think as most teenagers, like you hear, they have to tell us things like a hundred times because we hear yeah. them, we hear them every once in a while.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, So they got to say it every day. So I was getting glimpses, but I think then as I, as I started to enter, you know, I had my first high school coaching job when I was 22 years old, I was a varsity boys basketball coach in Middletown, Ohio. And so I was only like, in some cases, only four or five years older than the guys that were yeah, on, yeah. on my team. So very, very quickly, and there were some talented young players on that team just and really good kids, but very quickly I started having to spit back the same principles and ideals that just recently coaches were talking to me about. Mm. And so it's when you become a teacher of the principles that you've been taught, I think they start to more quickly take root and become a way of life rather than content that somebody's delivering to you.
1: So you and your wife, Marcy, decided to plant – in the West side of Chicago in an underserved community and just make that your life for the next, how long, how long were you there? 20, 25 years? Yeah. 21, 21 years, 21 years. So, I mean like that, I can only imagine as a young adult, the, the, the promise of that, you know, like there's a lot of allure to, to, to that. And so especially considering how you were raised and the values and the things that, that, you know, mattered to you. Um, but also I can only imagine that there was a lot of potential pushback. People being like, why are you, there's other ways you can do this. Why do you have to move into a community that's could be dangerous for you or, you know, requires so much of you. How, so I'd love to hear a little bit about your decision-making process for you guys to make that decision. And then also to just like commit to it for as long as you did. It's really remarkable.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, Joel. Thanks for, bringing that up. We, uh, I was 26 when we moved to Chicago. Marcy was 24.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Quinn was one and Avery was two weeks old. Wow. When we moved, um, that six hour car ride from, uh, Cincinnati to, uh, to the West side of Chicago was quite a, quite memorable to have mm. a two, a two week old in the back.
2: Yeah. No <laughs> um,
0: but uh, we actually moved because at that point my my dream was to become a Division One college basketball coach. Okay, and the move to Chicago was to further that further that dream.
2: Mm.
1: So
0: one of the goals was to uh, move there. We we, we wanted to, to raise our kids in a more multicultural situation, mm. um, and we had had some uh, some i don't know small epiphanies that in our time in southwest ohio that uh, that my experience as a midwestern pastor's kid and the stability that i grew up with might not have been the same experience for everyone else yeah um across the country that there were there were challenges economically there were challenges racially class divides and different things like that. And so we started to get some of these through the game of basketball, actually, in a summer league that I ran, uh, began to make me a little bit curious on issues of culture and race and uh, economic class and things like that, where some things just didn't quite seem fair for everyone. Uh, But that was kind of in the in the background of my head. In the forefront was career career ambition Mm. of coming to Chicago, building a set of relationships there, coaching young people, getting experience, and then moving on in, into the college space. And then having a, a lifelong connection to Chicago where I could come back and recruit and things like that to help me be successful in my career.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: When I got here, it was almost like, and you know, I'm a person of, 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 of faith that when I got here, it's almost like, God said, cool, I'm glad you're here. I too love basketball, but it's not quite for the same reason you might have come. Hmm. And I began to see some of the living conditions and the circumstances that guys that I was coaching uh, in Chicago, places they were coming from, challenges that they were facing. Got so to- at, that,
1: at that point you were coaching high school students?
0: I was, I was coaching on the side, kind of junior high and high school age, and I was starting. I was running a a little league program as well, like a baseball little league program in the summertime for about six hundred kids. Okay. And was on the leadership team of a new school that was preparing to start. That okay. I would, that I would have then been, been the the boys' varsity basketball coach of. Love the vision, everything. But then I got then I caught the school kind of had a a gap in time for a few years where it didn't. It took longer to get it going. Hmm. In the meantime, I fell in love with, love, fell in love too hard, too strong a word. Became more and more intrigued uh-huh. with sociologically what was happening on the west side of Chicago. Why was there so much struggle concentrated in one in one place? Yeah, and so hmm. it combined my faith and my curiosity, uh, my passion for youth and their families and sports and education, and Marcy, this similar is that we had uh, decided that we would, let's stick this out, but let's see, maybe there's another way of coming at this since the school's not going to be around for a while. Was Uh, the school going to be on the West Side? Yeah, it was. Yeah, So I ended up creating a a business plan for a youth development nonprofit that would be focused on sports and academics and faith. Hmm. Uh, And uh, had a group of men that I had met And women that I had met uh, over those first three months of being in Chicago. And at the time we were living over in the medical district uh, in the, in a neighborhood called tri Taylor. Yeah. Uh, So very close to struggle, but also in those immediate little blocks right there, you know, there was, you know, fairly well to do well-resourced families. Yeah. But it introduced me to more of the struggle on the West side. Uh, So developed a business plan that this group like reviewed every week and lined out and stuff. And, you know, they, they all kind of wanted to help and they, they saw this young couple with young kids that was crazy enough to move to the big city. You know, we were just intriguing enough for people to try to want to help us. And hmm. one of those folks actually then said, Hey, this is a great idea. What you guys are planning. Would you consider attaching yourself to an organization just about a mile and a half from here, who has been working with people who are experiencing homelessness and the community has asked them to also do some youth work, hmm. more preventative work. I said, well, yeah, I'd be entered. I'd be happy to introduce to him. So this is his name was Eric and uh, he took me over and introduced me to uh, a woman named Arloa
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: who was the executive director of this up and coming urban ministry called Breakthrough. And uh, we got acquainted and we ended up me just merging that business plan and volunteers and uh, some of the funding that I brought into a more stable organization that our LOA had built yeah. uh, where we had one back office you know, rather than two. So we had a lot of savings on those yeah. these visions and they complemented each other really well. One, working with folks who had experienced great trauma and hardship and the other trying to prevent trauma and hardship in the next generation of young people in that neighborhood called East Garfield Park. Right. Uh, we were living about two miles from there. And this is, I'll stop here in just a second. But it was after about a year of working at Breakthrough. Marcy and I were both working there. She was part-time because the kids were really small. And after about a year, Marcy woke up one night. and She says, I feel like we should live there. We don't understand what's going on. We don't like, we're serving people, and we're, but I feel like we should live there so we can get speed up our learning and our understanding of the community.
2: Yeah.
0: And I had been feeling the same way, but East Garfield Park at the time, and still to some degree, but at the time was a lot of people advised us against it. (laughs) Yeah. Once we started talking about it, that uh, you've got young kids, et cetera, et cetera you know, you don't have a lot of good school options. There's, there's no restaurants, there's no grocery stores. There's, there is a lot of crime and there is a lot of gun violence and drug dealing and things like that. Yeah. Um, And ultimately we decided we were going to do it. And I had a friend who had a house over there that he had just moved to Atlanta and we ended up getting a house there and lived there for just about 20 years. And so I remember that one of the very first things we put on uh, the side of the van that we used to transport teams to and from games Mm -hmm. uh, was preparing the next generation in East Garfield Park. And uh, that's what we kind of ended up doing, right? Is that our kids all grew up there. uh, So they were part of that next generation in East Garfield Park, our neighbors, you know, if you think of 20 years as a generation, that's kind of what we did. <laughs> yeah, right. We invested a generation, including raising our own kids, in a space that we didn't always fully fit in, but we were always welcomed, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, we learned a lot, grew a lot, but that's kind of how we got there.
1: How did you overcome the obstacles in the, I mean, more the emotional, mental doubts, concerns, fears about committing like that?
0: Uh, first night we got into our house, we didn't have any of our stuff. It was all in storage. And we'd been living in a little one-bedroom apartment, thanks to a friend uh, who kept it open for us for a few months, because it actually took us close to nine months to close on our house. Hmm. There were some complications in the, the, the renters from the previous owner moving out on time and their place being ready to move into and things like that. So it took quite a long time. Okay, I remember the first night moving in, we had an air mattress in the living room. And outside the house, it's loud. It's like a Friday night or something. It's loud late into the night and parks. The park is right down the block from us. And and so it's a little, little intimidating uh, late at night. So I've got the, I've got some of those thoughts in my head. Like, you know, like, did we make the right decision here? Yeah. And just about midnight comes a knock on the door. Boom, 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 boom. I'm like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I got up, I went to the door and open up and it's a teenage girl.
2: Hmm.
0: And she says, hi, my name is Portia. I live across the street. She said, that's my grandma on the porch over there. Now keep in mind, it's like midnight.
1: Right, right.
0: <laughs> that's my grandma on the porch over there. I said, oh, great. I went in my mind. I'm like, okay. like, <laughs> So <laughs> it's a little odd time of night to introduce yeah, yeah. me to your grandma. But uh, she said, "My grandma said that your keys are hanging in your front door, and you probably shouldn't leave them there." <laughs> 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 I looked down, and there's my keys in the front door—car keys and everything.
1: Oh my god! You know, it
0: just there's no screen door or anything. It's you know, just out in the wow. open. So yeah, I yeah. think I think that that story, and there's like probably three or four more like it in our first week of living there, where neighbors just really took us under their wing. And said, you know what? Like, you're really interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We don't really know a lot of people just like you who are are here. We don't even know why you're here, but we're going to be hospitable and we're going to welcome you in. Um, And that story on that first night, I really think was there to say, like, just because you're different than your neighbors doesn't mean that you're not cared for or that you're not seen. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, Not everybody's out to get you. In fact, the grandma across the street sees you and is going to advise you not to leave your keys hanging in the door overnight. Right, right. (laughs) So to me, it was symbolic of the fact that we were in the right place. And and I think that's the other thing is just because you're not comfortable all the time doesn't mean you're in the wrong place. Yeah. It, It actually can mean you're in a very good place.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just so there's so much fear. It creates separation and creates more fear, and you know, be, making the decision to to close that gap because a lot of those a lot of the reasons why people have fear are not necessarily uh, incorrect. You know, like statistically they might be accurate, but when it comes to you making a decision for your own life and the kind of life you want to live, the values you want to live it by you can't only look at that fear. You have to look at other things.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you have to look at passion, interest and recognize too like you know, for us one of the things was that what do we want for the next generation of our kids? What's going to be best for our kids as well that's going to help spur them on to successful adulthood. And sometimes comfortability is not the right path. Yeah, to get there. Uh, and so, you know, you see it all the time, sometimes, you know, uh, human beings who inherit a great deal of wealth, yes, sometimes aren't sure what to do, mm-hmm. you know, if they've had, if they've had a relatively seamless life up to that point, sometimes things just get squandered or, you know, and so for us, you know, we've never had to battle extreme wealth <laughs> <laughs> in our lives, but yeah. uh, I, I remember sitting with a pastor on the West side of Chicago, pretty well-known uh, pastor, and I remember telling him, like one of the one of the things that I hope to get out of this is the next generation of my family understands that people of faith and and other humans from other cultures and everything like that we don't all have to be exactly alike to be in alignment with each other and to have bonds with each other, uh, and that my kids would be prepared to enter into a multicultural world as adults and yeah. to and to be. Um, not protectors of themselves, but contributors to community Hmm. around them.
1: Yeah. So help me understand how you determine that line, because to a certain degree, you, you know, as you're a, you're a father of your kids and that is a part of your job, right? To protect them, to make sure that they have, what they need to grow and thrive. And and like you're saying, part of that is having some challenge and some discomfort because that there's growth in that. But how do you determine that line between where it's too far and no longer helpful or not enough and uh, complacency becomes a thing that sets in?
0: Yeah, I don't know that there's a foolproof method. You know, part of it is feel, some of it's mm. guess and check, like, oops, I think we're over the line right there. <laughs> Pull back. Uh, but an- mm. another thing, Thing looking back is that folks in our neighborhood, our our actual geographic neighbors, who I who I built friendships with over the years and who were so hospitable and trusting of us, uh, they also had feedback into that very question, hmm. where they would say, "Bill, Bill, Bill, no, really, don't do that. <laughs> to you know, hold your kids a little tighter." that hmm. you're holding them right now or you know they had neighborhood context yeah and, and they had perspective that i only have one perspective as a parent right yeah. I, i've got me and if i'm fortunate enough to be married like i am uh then i have the perspective of my wife uh, but I, but it, important thing i think about getting to that line is who else do you put in the lives of your kids hmm. so uh, i like to think of it as uh, we call it kind of the network model, you know, and we used it right, right. At, at Breakthrough for twenty years as a as a main strategy for developing networks of of adults around young people.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, but I did the same thing with my kids. <clears throat>
2: hmm.
0: So th- there were a bunch of other people, who, uh, adults, who were invested in in their lives in different roles as coaches and neighbors and teachers, and and I I didn't try to shut those voices out. I actually tried to include them so that I could become not just for my kids to become better, but for me to become a better father, I needed I needed that interaction with that community of folks who cared about my kids as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. That goes back to, I mean, that is like a direct parallel to what you're talking about on the team. Like I need to show up and do the best that I can, but I also have to trust that everyone else on this team is doing that as well. Yep, absolutely. So how do you not... Interpret your I don't have the, the right perspective or the proper perspective as personal failure and something that attacks your confidence and feeling like you know what to do or that you can handle a situation when you don't have all the information you need.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you
1: know one of the things that's
0: helpful for me is looking at solutions not always as right and wrong. You know, if you've got a, if there's a problem you're trying to solve, as a parent or a community leader or whatever, I, I actually started to put things into, and I don't come at this from a place of expertise. I'm just kind of like, telling you some of my thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Um, is I started to put solutions into healthy options, and unhealthy options.
1: Hmm.
0: Recognize, and that takes a lot of pressure off of me. Compared to, is this the absolute right? best decision because if to make that absolute best decision, I have to have all the facts. Right. And I know I'm not going to have all the facts. Yeah. So I have to reduce that mental pressure on myself a little bit and say, okay, here's some healthy options over here. Here's some unhealthy. So I'm going to eliminate the unhealthy ones. Now let's look at the ones that, that could be good and not put myself on the, on the pressure on the high pressure seat which one of these is always absolute, the very best thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, the second principle I would say is, is I start with the idea that I'm imperfect. And so mm-hmm. versus starting through the lens that I'm capable of making the perfect decision all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, And so if, if I start from the lens of, you know, I'm happy, I'm real happy if I make, healthy choices and create healthy solutions and pick from them i'm going to make a situation better than it was when i found it if i'm locked into perfection i might get it sometimes but i might also feel like a failure a lot yeah yeah so i, I don't know if that's just mind games with myself uh but it's one of the couple of the ways that i approach it
1: yeah no i mean you sound uh, like my therapist <laughs> like, <absolutely. laughs> Uh, That's amazing that you said right and wrong. It's like black and white thinking and it's detrimental to decision-making a lot of the time. Yeah. Coming to that realization was something that happened over time or like through, through the struggle of like, oh man, the way I'm approaching this isn't working. Or was it something that you kind of came through, through conversations and counsel with the people around you or like older, wiser, your dad and others or
0: yeah, it's definitely from grown over time from counsel with others, either informal or formal. Mm-hmm. Uh, one man in particular named Mike is. Uh, um, I talk to him a lot. He's kind of he's in the, he's kind of retired somewhat. But he's also a spiritual director, and he's been really influential in in helping me grow in my next chapter, uh, and so. I would say it wasn't very many years ago that I was still thinking in terms of what's the right solution compared to all the wrong ones. Mm. And someone like Mike, he asked me really thoughtful questions. And then he'll, even like, he doesn't say like, I think you're wrong. He says, well, if you go down that line of thinking, where do you land? You know, how do, and how do you feel about where you land? And does that feel healthy, mm. <laughs> you know, even because yeah, yeah. there's, there's unhealthy ways to still get good results. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then yeah, a lot
1: of people get hurt in the process. <laughs> yes. Right.
0: And that's not good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and I think that would be like the ends justify the means. Right. Which is a, a kind of a dangerous path to go down when you're talking yeah. about other people's humanity. Yeah. Uh, uh, along the way. And so, so definitely from counsel and definitely grown over time. And I expect we'll continue to grow. You know, I'm a person who, in effect, Joel. I'll say this over the years: you've been a real thoughtful person in my life too. Uh, You and you and Mo and Cindy and just some of the questions you guys ask over the years. It's you know, I would put myself in your camp as people who are hungry learners, and I don't want to ever stop being a learner.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: I think as soon as you stop learning, it's uh, it's it's your your lifespan after that shortens dramatically. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) true (laughs) the opportunities that i've had just through breakthrough and and the relationships that have developed there for me have been very influential and um shaped me significantly okay cool so you so you've made this decision now 21 years in the west side of chicago and in east garfield park working at Breakthrough Investing in this generation of kids, all three of your kids now are in college. Some is Avery done. Avery's finished.
0: Yeah, she graduated wow. this year. Quinn graduated two years ago. Avery this year, and Addie, awesome. our our youngest, is just finished her freshman year of college.
1: Wow, that's crazy. So, and Quinn's coaching basketball, right? You... Yeah, he is. What? Are the... <laughs> yeah, he's an assistant. He's
0: an assistant coach at uh, his alma mater in Portland, Oregon. Love and life. He's recruiting, scouting, uh, doing player development and, you know, assisting the head coach during games, just getting a lot of great experience. And then he's also an admissions counselor at the college as well.
1: Do you ever, um, think what would, what would have happened to me if I did do the division one coaching thing?
0: Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I do. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that ultimately that's a really hard life too, mm is it's easy to look on TV and, and see the guy you know, those coaches and be like, wow, that's man, there's, there's, they're famous. They're making a good amount of money, but they also have moved their families around yeah. the country 10 or 12 times. And they're always at risk
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: rapidly of one bad season. You might be moving again, yeah you know, and, uh, in the assistant coach world in particular, before you become head coach, even it's, it's even more transient. And, uh, so what would have happened? I don't know, man. I don't know if my family would still be together. Hmm. You know that there's a lot of stressors. I remember at one point there was a, eight. I don't think it was eighty percent of Division One coaches had split up from their original spouse. Wow. And so while there's times when I when I sit there and I'm like, I'm, I'm watching a game and I'm like, I'm pumped about it. Or even last night, my son called and he, you know, Quinn. We talked for like an hour on the phone about recruiting like, guys that he's recruiting right now and different things like that. And my, yeah. my competitive juices get flowing, but yeah. I, I wouldn't, tr- I wouldn't trade where I'm at right now though. I'll tell you that.
1: Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about that decision to go to where you are now and how you came to peace about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at, at breakthrough in Chicago over those two, two decades um, is I was, really blessed to be a part of just a wonderful organization and got to have my hands in the nitty gritty, both in programs and fundraising and strategic planning and on the leadership team. And Got to accomplish some pretty cool things with the group related to the, even like the, the fundraising and the building of the family plex, mm-hmm. you know, and building some programs from scratch and just some really amazing experience for me uh, that, I hope was was even half as valuable for other people as it was for me as a human being, you know. Hmm. Then in August we dropped uh, our youngest daughter off at the University of Tampa for her freshman year. Addie, Quinn had gone to Portland and paid for a big part of his ba- his college expenses through basketball. Avery, our oldest daughter had had done similar. She's graduated from Olivet in uh, near Kankakee, Illinois. And our youngest was also a basketball player, but she decided that uh, the the schools that were interested in her, she was not interested in them. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so she just decided, you know what, I want to go to college. I'm not really interested in playing basketball though, but I'd like to go someplace warm. Yeah, (laughs) And uh, she discovered the University of Tampa through some friends that had also visited it, the campus. And so as Marcy and I dropped her off and we turned to head back north to Chicago, and we were kind of on a two or three day road trip, we just started to to feel a little bit of a sense of, maybe we were, it's important to know when to stay someplace, and it's important to know when to leave, Uh, is that there were a lot of folks in the organization that had been there for a long time. Marcy had been there for 20 plus years. I'd been there for 20 years. Yolanda, really good friend of mine had been there for like 19 years. Mm -hmm. John, John Smith, who was, you know, was with us, was there for 20 years, still there. The leadership team of the organization had an incredible tenure.
1: Yeah.
0: So we just started to, to feel a little bit of a, like maybe a spiritual release to say, maybe we were, uh, should be open to a new chapter you know we were recent empty nesters mm-hmm. so we decided you know what we're not gonna go searching but let's just be mentally open and in case in case any opportunities pop and come our way which yeah. they they had from time to time over the those the previous 21 years where we had just said like nah not interested you know we're locked in yeah and yeah. uh this year as we moved into the empty nester phase we just kind of thought we're we're committed, but maybe we can be committed and still be open that there may be a new chapter in our lives on the horizon. And it wasn't very much longer after that, that uh, I got contacted by a, a search firm for a leadership position down here in Florida. And I kind of thought, ah, you know what? It's in Naples. <laughs> that's not, that's not what I do.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: I, I love the I love the people of great wealth, you know who are who are in Naples, but I don't really want to live there. <laughs> you know, other other than the sun and everything, that's great, and the palm yeah. trees behind me out my window. Yeah, um, and so I even told the folks, like, you know, I'm open to talking because my wife and I just decided that we'll be open to talking to interesting unique opportunities yeah but to tell you the truth I I've, I have I live and work among people who life has not treated well
2: yeah
0: and and who have intense struggle oftentimes in the basic necessities of life and uh, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs I tend to work in the lower levels <laughs> of hierarchy of needs not the self-actualization you know where, yeah. so anyway then the group started sharing with me that I only knew part of the story of Naples and of Collier County in Florida. Mm -hmm. And they started to paint the rest of the picture to me that there was intense need here as well. uh, And that the upper 1% of income earners averaged four and a half million dollars a year in in annual income. The other 99% averaged $58,000 a year Mm. annual income per household, which sounds like, oh, you could probably get by on that. But I'll say that's the, that's the average of the other 99%. So, you know, there's 50% way below that. Right. And then you look, they started to tell you about the housing crisis here as well. You know, is that a one, a one bedroom apartment is now going for close to $2,100 and not just along the beach. This is like regular workforce housing or affordable housing in the area. And they started to paint this picture also related to the town of Immokalee here in Florida Mm -hmm. uh, that has some major justice issues related to the the tomato farms and uh, citrus and and just the the migrant farmer community. And it it began to become a lot more interesting to me that I was not considering this job because of the weather. I was considering this job because we felt spiritually, we should be open to a new possibility. And we decided it would only be a really unique opportunity or a really unique location. And I ended up getting offered this position uh, here at St. Matthew's house in Florida, and it was both. It's a really unique opportunity and a really unique location where my responsibility is to build a department that, that is a bridge between those that upper 1% of income earners and a bunch of the other folks that are mixed into that other 99% along to, to be supportive of folks who are experiencing addiction and homelessness and hunger. And now bridging in a lot more to workforce development and affordable housing as well. Uh, And so it's a whole new challenge for me. A lot of the same types of programs that I was a part of at Breakthrough, but in a a different context, we have uh, a lot of of immigrants from Haiti, uh, as well as numerous places around the world uh, where it's a very international county. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Chicago thinking about Naples, I really only knew people who had significant financial resources. Who were coming down here in the winters i didn't know the whole story so that's yeah. where it became more interesting to me and, and then it's just kind of like it, it went from there and i just found myself getting more and more intrigued with it yeah. uh but it really was you know kind of me just allowing myself to be open which previously i didn't i i i felt led in my in my spirit to like i'm fully committed to the west side of chicago both in residence and workforce, like where I work. And that I should be open because if I happen to leave, it also opened up opportunities for more people to grow and to step into other space in my departure as well. And if I force myself to stay too long, those things don't usually end up well. You know, you stunt the growth of others, you stunt the growth of yourself, and you can stunt the growth of an organization as well.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so on one hand, having a lot of longevity in one place is awesome, but yet, yeah, but it's not the only it's not the only avenue towards growth.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. What's the website and what's a place that can, people can learn more?
0: Yeah, you could go to uh, stmatthewshouse.org. dot org. So that's S T house dot org. No apostrophe in Matthews. Okay. It's, uh, yeah You can learn more on the website. My information's on there too. People could reach out. It's a big part of what I do is help uh, uh, folks learn more about what we do. Mm-hmm. And really, if I were to summarize it in kind of one sentence is we help folks who are showing up in crisis, help them move through our programs of care and to realize their full potential again and become co- contributors to the community around them.
1: Well, I have no doubt that you're going to contribute a ton and already are to the program there. And you're definitely an asset and an awesome person to just have around. (laughs) We definitely miss you up here.
0: Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. It's good to see your face and hear your voice. And You know, I think uh, if I had one final thought is oftentimes people think of if I left one place and go to another, it's because I didn't like something there and I'm trying to get something better. Hmm and that's not what happened in in this case and i would yeah. ur- i would urge us all is that not to leave one place because of dissatisfaction to seek satisfaction somewhere else it's possible to be fully satisfied where you are and be fully satisfied in the next place too
1: yeah that's a good word awesome well thanks so much for your time bill i hope uh someday we'll get down to florida there and yeah Give you a call. Yep, let me <laughs> let me know. Cool, all right. Well, say hi to Marcy. And uh, yeah, great to talk to you. I'll do that. You too. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. If you want to learn more about the work of St. Matthew's House in Naples, Florida, you can visit stmatthewshouse.org. And if you want to learn more about Breakthrough, In Chicago, you can learn more at their website, Breakthrough.org. Both URLs are linked in the episode description. (coughs) I sneezed all over the microphone. The kids are coming down with something. They've been sick all day. I'm fighting something off. One more. (laughs) (coughs) We've got these Fisherman's Friend Salmiak lozenges, Dutch licorice lozenges. They're really good. I really appreciated that chat with Bill. And thanks so much for being here for episode six. I will see you for episode seven. Stay healthy.